podcast that investigates the experience of self, the events that have shaped our world, the people that we have become, by focusing on the person first. What's your earliest memory of somebody who's good at life? Wow. That is really one of those ones that you're going to have to ponder in it. So, I don't know... Obviously, you get aspirational figures off the TV and things like that. Mm. Um, but a physical character in my life that I could see, I suppose it kind of has to be, and this is going to be cliche, my dad. Because he was, he was very sporty, whereas I kind of wasn't. I was in the sense that I went to karate from the age of four, which gave me a massive teaching. You know, I, I, I base most of my life still on that because as, as kids were reading learning to read and write I was learning how to be disciplined and to fight and to control fighting you know so I was a typical karate kid you know when the karate kid came out that was that was me but I hated the karate kid because it was just such a lax technique <laughs> you know you know you when were, you, you were properly analyzing yeah it was it's like that kick's never gonna work like the big kick at the end absolute bollocks I would never, never land that no no what are you doing just no <laughs> So because my dad was quite sporty, he, he had a kind of semi-pro career playing for Gillingham, the football club, which is quite local to me. Mm. Um, and also he played for Kent um, in cricket. So he had these two... If, if, if he was American, he'd be called a... Um, what was it? Like a, the Americans actually have a term for it, isn't it? When you've got good sportsmanship on like multiple levels. Oh, remember. yeah. Um, like a... All American or something like that. I can't it remember. won't be much, anything I know about because I'm useless on sport. Yeah, me too. <laughs> so, <laughs> my dad was always that figure of, well, he's achieved. You know, he's he's done something. And if it wasn't for the fact, he always used, he used to joke that if it wasn't for meeting my mum, he probably would have pursued professional football sooner and quicker. Um, but it was the decision of right: do I pursue a relationship or do I pursue sport? So he yeah. went. He went with my mum, which. I don't know how that worked out. They're still together. Any, they? <laughs> any medals for that? <laughs> but I suppose that's that is the character that when when you're younger, like like I'm talking about four years old, when I've not got that memory memories of being a four year old. Now we were just speaking about our ages, and now yeah. I'm approaching forty. When are you forty then? Um, that would be oh February next year. Oh, okay, so I'm July, so quite soon. Yeah, and that, I'll that, let you know it is for you. It's that it's that big one, isn't it? When, when yeah. It's, I think it was Joe Rogan that said, can you remember when adults were a thing? Yeah. And now we're the adults. It's, it's too weird for me. How did that happen? Yeah, I really don't feel like that. Do you, do you feel like... Because I remember my parents being 40, and I'm looking at myself being 40, and I'm like, I'm not them. No, this is so... Uh, uh, yeah, I, I get it. I've looked the other way around and go, they weren't who I thought they were. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly <laughs> They it. were me, basically. Oh, blimey, yeah. So I'm, I'm looking up at them thinking... Because I always think I'm the youngest person in the room quite often, just, be, you know, through, I don't know, some kind of introspective reason, but I'm always thinking, oh, no, that person's more successful, that person's bigger. And then, of course, you've got that kind of imposter syndrome that comes with that. And then all of a sudden you're a 13-year-old in a classroom again looking up at everybody that's doing better than you. It's this yeah. weird position. I think, I think everyone has imposter syndrome, but they just communicate it differently, right? Yeah. I like to think so, because I like to think the people that haven't got it, I don't want to know them. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, because you don't think they'll empathise with you, right? Yeah, yeah, another thing. Yeah, and the chances are, if you haven't got a degree of imposter syndrome, then you're probably a little bit egotistical. Because mm. uh, it's all when you know, have confidence, absolutely have confidence, but don't let it turn into arrogance because it's a fine line, yeah. and especially in the creative fields, you know, you know, I've I've worked with loads of different people. Some of the biggest people that you can imagine are humble, and some of the up and comers are. A, yeah, <laughs> they, they say that actually in the world of kind of you know wealth and money, they say the people who are the billionaires, super high net worths, mm. they're like absolutely lovely. If they go to visit their private banker, they'll chat to the person at reception, be yep. really sweet, or chat to the person in the lift or whatever. And the people who are on the way up, who are in wealth creation mode, but not necessarily there, yeah, they're the people with the knives out. I completely agree with that because I know two billionaires and they well I don't know them but I've worked with them I've met them I've dealt with them I've been in their houses and they are absolutely lovely hospitable you know make the place your own that kind of and then I've known people that are on that kind of like you said wealth creation ladder yeah who um, there's someone in particular I've got in mind I won't obviously name but there's someone that's been in the finance industry and then kind of branched out into broadcasting and they are quite Farage yeah, they are. No, 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 no Farage. <laughs> yeah, let's bring that up on election no, no, day. Sorry, sorry. No, I hijacked that. Sorry. What are I, they like? I don't know. I, I, he, yeah, the person I'm thinking of was a complete muppet. He really was. He, the ego is there. It's all written over him. It, it's broadcasted, and mm. and I don't. I just don't know how people can do that. Does it? Do they lack self awareness, or is it just that they got enough confidence that they don't care what people think? So I, this is really weird. I had this situation, and I can't say who it was, but I've interviewed somebody, and I won't be able to publish it because I didn't, I didn't get anything from the person. So it was almost like a monologue. Complete control from the moment they came in. Right. And, like, you're a patient. I can already tell you're a patient person who listens, you know, which is great you know, if you're going to be a broadcaster or a reporter or anything, anything where you're taking information and then you know, sending it out. You have to listen as well. And this person was in absolutely no mood to even digest the questions. It was like, quick answer, bang, straight back to something else they want to talk about. And I was like, this isn't useless because if I'm trying to get something from you that is meaningful, um, and if this is just part of your repertoire, mm. it's like, just, just go, go and do another podcast where that's all they need. Um, and it was re- I was really upset. I was like, oh, man, what can I do? And I found myself then being confrontational in a way because I had to bring it back to the subject. And when you... I just like to be able to ask someone a, a question. I don't get the right... I don't get... It's not getting the, right, the answer that I want. It's getting an right answer that's pertinent to the question. And I came back to it and I found myself then being a little bit, you know... Yeah, you know, the antagonist in the room. I can understand that. And one of the red flags, if you are interviewing people, is if they ask for a list of questions, which oh, yeah. I have had a few times. Most people in the podcasting world don't tend to ask for that because they understand it's conversational. Yeah. But there are people that really do demand, you know, I want to know where this is coming from, because I just don't want curveballs. And like you said, they're so prepped up on the points they want to hit yeah. that they just don't give any, anything else over. Yeah. And in which case, what do you do with that? As you said, you know, a lot yeah. of times you can't publish it. I, think, I don't know if there's... Is there an awareness of, like, in the public consciousness that you have... 
maybe got notice of that the people are, are now trying to look for the long form unedited interviews or they, they don't want the hypercut, they don't want the headline or whatever. They just want to see it for themselves of what actually happened before and after that moment. Yeah, I get the feeling that we've turned into a culture of being fly on the wall. Yeah. I think that we like being voyeurs. Yeah. So whereas I've had experience in both kind of really edited, cut down uh, soundbite uh, performances and I've also got now the podcast side of things which is a lot more, like you said, long form. And I get the distinct impression that even in the last 10 years, we've shifted. I think podcasting has been, it's a cliche, but I think it has been a revolution. Mm. I think that most people have been in broadcasting terms used to radio Mm. um, as the main form of interview. But now we've turned into podcasting. And a lot of times you get a good relationship with podcasting because some people know each other or it is informal inherently. So you do get that more voyeuristic feel. Yeah. And how do you not love being a part of that, being a fly in the wall in that conversation? Yeah. But is it part of, this is prescribed to you, and it's got the voice to go with it, and all that kind of thing, yeah. or you are listening to this, and these people are just carrying on without you? What is the, what's the kind of kickback from that when you say, like, a voyeur? Well, how do you define voyeur? What is that? Someone who gets a thrill from... Seems like they shouldn't. But, but not being witnessed themselves. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that kind of being pressed up against the window, you know, that kind of... It's like, it's like conversational dogging, that kind yeah. of... Actually, let's just, just, let's just put it's that... It's a great literary podcast. Yeah, we need to, Yeah, that's it. Let's start yeah. a new one, conversational dogging. That's it. Well, I'm patenting that. Um, but I, and also, I just... I get the feeling as well that, that I think most people are media savvy now. Yeah. So the average person has got Facebook and Twitter. They've seen all the junkets that come out with people promoting films... They've seen it all and heard it all. They know how the formats work. Yeah. So I think people now just want something different and change it up. And, and it, it could be a generational thing. It could be that the younger generation have taken media, formed it as their own, because it's a lot more accessible now. Yeah. You, know, you can do a lot more yourself than what you ever could 20 years ago. Yeah. So is it a case of that the generational shift has just meant that people have got more access to this and that yeah. they can produce things that they want to be part of as well? Yeah. You talk about press junkets... I was, um, I don't know, I got onto this, you know, you get into a, a wormhole of YouTube, you go from one thing to another, yeah. and it was Christian Guramurthy, and he's, um, he's been involved in television for a really young age, yeah. isn't he? Yeah, news round. Yeah. yeah. And um, he was antagonising Robert Downey Jr. I You've seen him, yeah, yeah. And I thought to myself, oh man... He's really upset at this. Like Robert Downey Jr. really doesn't want to do this kind of thing. And he goes, what are we doing here? Yeah. You know, and I thought, um, how does Christian Guru Murphy feel? That's all I was thinking when I was watching that is, it's clear how Robert Downey Jr. is feeling, but is there a cognitive dissonance between in this man where he's like, oh, it's part of the game. Is it a sparring thing? What's your take on it? I, I, I've given quite a lot of thought to this because I've got a sympathy for what Christian went through on that. Because I don't know, I don't know Christian, I don't know what he was doing on that. But it's not the first one he had a car crash with, was it? There's some other people. Tarantino. That, yeah, that happened as well. And I get the feeling that Christian is a news broadcaster, he's a journalist. So therefore, he's not, he doesn't want to go into that and do a press junket. He doesn't want to pr- promote the next film. You know, because it's gotten to the point where that was for, I don't know, probably Avengers or Iron Man or something. Yeah. Which was going out on Channel 4 News. That's not a news item. 
you know, that's an entertainment thing. So Christians is probably going into it thinking, well, I've got to get something. I've got to make this kind of news broadcastable. So he was going for that more antagonistic point of view of you know, trying to get some character out as opposed to going for all the usual platitudes that come with press junkets. And there was just that, that kind of discrepancy on, on where each one was within that interview. So you've got Robert Downey Jr. who's just going to be lined up with a conveyor belt of sure. journalists coming through. Christian's obviously been waiting in line thinking, I've got to get something different to all of these lot from, you know, Closer magazine or, you know, not I'm singling out Closer magazine. I'm sure they're lovely. <laughs> but um, it, I think it's that, that Christian just needed to do something. And it just so happened it turned into a bit of a conflict. Isn't it like um, how that would be handled? So maybe one of those stars, if they're asked about their dad or some kind of thing that's personal, if they thought it was being handled in the right way, they might talk about it. But if they thought it was like, click, got what we want, see ya. And it's being used as a commodity just to get more eyes on, you know. Maybe that it was also... I, I thought that's what he looked at. He looked like, you don't care, you're not asking this question, you're looking for sensation. Yeah, and I think that a lot of people, especially the the kind of A-list celebrities, I think they're constantly on their guard for the gotcha moment. Yeah. In the press now, you're always dealing with those gotcha moments. of mm. And being in the political field like I am now, it's quite often on Twitter, someone's leading a question so, just so you can fall in a trap so they can go, look, look, look at this. And I think that, especially with the publicists that are around, because like, it won't be just Robert Downey Jr., he'll have a whole congregation of staff and publicists and agents they're all going to be looking for the gotchas as well. Yeah. Chances are they did have to submit a prescribed set of questions, as we just mentioned. Yeah. Christian probably deviated from that, which is, in which case, again, red flags went up with the, with the crew that was looking after yeah. the celebrity. Yeah. So there's, I would like to have seen the fly on the wall behind all of that, like pull back the camera and get all of that set up in oh, some I'd sort of big brother that. moment. I yeah. bet that was fascinating. I'd love to know who he's talking to and what they were, like, miming back to him, like, yeah. I don't know, or just quit. And then at one point, he goes, yeah, OK, right. Yeah. So they must have gone, get out of here. Eject and that's the, the thing. Like, even though we, people like Robert Downey Jr., we, we expect to be quite uh, emboldened and a master of our own destiny, they're still beholden to the people that are behind them, their yeah. agents, their staff. These are the ones that... You know, there's, there's They're employees. Weird, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so there's chances are they're not making the decisions on their own, the celebrities. There's this whole great congregation of, right, what's going on? Let's, yeah, yeah. let's damage limitation this. And yeah. So, yeah, I think that is a really good example, actually, the Christian Guru Murphy. Um, yeah. And bless him, he has had some car crashes. And I get because I think he's a good journalist. I think he, he knows what he's doing. It would have always a good journalist then to you. I think it's, again, someone that. I, I'm not particularly a fan of Paxman because of the constant out-to-get-you confrontational. You know, you set out with Paxman and he's there jabbing. And I don't... It works for some. You know, some people need, need a tough ride. But I do think you need to go into it with a um, reactionary point of view. So treat everybody with their with the best respect. And if you're getting some, some nonsense back, then kind of go in harder but you just can't go in straight away with fierceness because that doesn't work. You're straight away going to put someone's back up. You wouldn't do that in a conversation generally. Yeah, yeah well, they walk away from you, wouldn't they, normally? Exactly. So yeah. it's a case of, you know, play it by ear. See, see it's, I think a journalist has to react. I think they constantly need to be thinking where it's going, 
what response is coming back and where they can go from it from there. Um, just as you said earlier, that you, you know someone that can do multiple strings. They know where they're going. They've got this one coming in. Yeah. It's, it's a symphony. And yeah. you won't even see it in a good journalist because it's just that's them doing their thing. Yeah. But when you see a bad journalist, that's when you can spot it. Yeah. Jordan Peterson, do you see him taking on some people? Yes. What do yes. you think of him? Um, I, I'm on the fence. I don't know. I honestly yeah. don't know that much about. And, and it's, uh, I've, I know in my realm the journalists that I respect, yeah. and I know the ones that I don't necessarily. Yeah. Um, Prime Minister, like, who, who's one? Is there anyone that I can name? We've got a weird relationship with Peter Hitchens um, because. Oh, hang on. Which one is the good brother? Most people think Christopher Hitchens is the good one. Yeah, Most the people, one. Is he dead? Yeah. Yeah, Peter Hitchens is a nut. <laughs> have you seen him talk to Russell Brand? Yes, yes, I have. Oh my god, he's horrible. He looks horrible as well. Like he's the way he he sneers at people. I know you shouldn't be judging them on that, but I'm, I don't understand why he gets a platform. It's I I've got theories of why. It's the whole um, confrontational. Um, there's there is a term within the industry, which I'm sure you know. I don't know. I don't um, know anything so you, about the industry. So if you, if you imagine Katie Hopkins, Peter Hitchens, Rod Liddell, uh, James Denningpole, they're all called, am I allowed to swear? Yeah. Rent-a-cunts. <laughs> That's an awful thing. That's what they're there for. They're there to put across a point of view that is going to be contentious and get people's backs up. They're there to stimulate the conversation in a negative sense. That's why in question time, the, for, the formula, formula of the panel would be a moderate voice, a celebrity for marketing, um, the, the, the kind of panel of uh, cross-party, so Labour, Conservative, Lib Dems, if they're lucky, bless them. Yeah. And then you'll get the rent-a-cunt, which would be normally um, Rod Liddell. He's normally one of them, Peter Hitchens, bless him, because, like I said, I've got an interesting relationship with Peter Hitchens. Um, and, and that's why they're there. They're just there to, to make people either outraged or pander to the really extreme views. But why? Why do we need extreme views? Well, it makes it just confuses me. I don't know what, and I don't want to parti- participate in it. That's in. that's that's the kind of discussion that's going on at the moment because media is changing, and a lot of times we we do think in terms of do we need that? Do we need to kind of polarise it? Yeah. And that's that's the issue is that a lot of times media are looking for that polarisation of this point versus this point. But what is actually happening um, is you lose balance because. The idea of having different points of view is you're supposed to get a balance then. Yeah. But if it's, what if it's disproportionately balanced? So, prime example, if you've got a consensus and 90% of people think this and 10% of people think this, is it right then to give a 50-50 platform? No. <laughs> That's the issue. Because That's a lot obvious. of times... It's ent- I think we, the end result is that they're looking for entertainment yeah. and I'm looking for facts and information. And so... Are people now... I get the feeling that people are going to other sources, like directly to the source, be it a YouTube channel they can trust, yeah. be it a podcast they can trust, who, who may be interviewing like balanced people, and you end the conversation better informed about what the other arguments are. Like Part of the argument should be to try and understand the other person's where they're coming from and find some ground so you, everything can move, be moved ahead. But yeah. when you've got this absolute polemic you can't because no one's going to step far away to mid-ground right and i think that's the interesting evolution of media at the moment is that very point is that most people have got sick of the traditional format which is get that person in a room that person in a room get them to fight or 
you know, let, let Paxman jab away at this character over here that might not actually have anything to say. Yeah. I think people are looking for going back to bare bones, going to the sources, getting away from all of that kind of... It's, it's journalistic marketing. You know, it's, we've, we've, the media has been a, a massive industry for decades, obviously, right back to the 20s. You know, that's kind of when the media moguls really started to take grip of the world. That evolution has taken place since then means that we're not so much presenting facts anymore, we're presenting the facts that are going to sell yeah, and that's the problem. Is the that facts that people find moves. interesting? Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. So almost like the facts that they that are way too that are too far away from the argument that they're familiar with, they just won't be able to latched onto. Yeah, and and it's the presentation of those because someone's fact can be disputed over here. For example, the work the the realm I now work in, which is drug policy. It, the, all the evidence is on our side. You know, we can back it up with academic evidence till the cows come home. Over here, you've got the shouting match, yeah. but they get equal attention, and quite often, purely because of pulling a moralistic standpoint, they'll get more airtime. Mm. So in which case, again, are we doing presenting the facts justice, or again, are we just go for a marketing hook to make sure that people get involved in this argument? Do people just opt out then? Are you thinking that's the future? People just opt out of all of this stuff and just simply go to their own sort of... Because the beautiful thing about somebody who's doing it, running their own podcast, you would hope that they are going to be... They might be financed by their sponsors, but like you, you just swore, but you asked for permission, right? <laughs> <laughs> but the, the great thing is, I think all the podcasts that me and you might listen to, unless they are on you know, a special platform or something... The person goes, yeah, do whatever you want. I don't care. I think my audience is intelligent enough to understand, you know, someone who's rude and someone yeah. who's just using it for effect or whatever. And, um, and it, so in some ways, um, there could be this magnetising towards, I hate this word, it's overused, authenticity. And, and then the, almost like the boots on the other foot then, the gatekeeper isn't the media conglomerates and the established established um, infrastructure, they then underpin whatever the individual says, right? I, th I think that's so on point. I think the evolution of media in a way that it's the, the big companies are not in trouble, but they're having to really think their models mm. uh, because of the realms that we've just been speaking about, because we've now got access to broadcasting ourselves. Mm. I think that that's why you've got I mean, the online media revolution was obviously massive. The fact that we went from print media over to the digital realm, yeah. that opened up different factors as well, of like, well, more journalists can participate because of the way it's distributed, which means that you technically you're getting a bigger spread of people's opinions and voices. But also what comes with that is that, whereas someone like myself, if I, 20 years ago, I probably would have had to have gone through a very vigorous um, training regime. I would have had to have all the academic training as well, gone to university to be a journalist. Now, I can just ring up someone and go, do you fancy this piece? And they go, yeah, go on in. I can write it, and it's out there on Vice or Huffington Post or BBC. Yeah. And that, that access of, you know, it's almost like you know, Gonzo, you know, the Gonzo Yeah, voices. of course, I love it, yeah. And, and that's, that's where we're at now, is that yeah. you can be a journalist... Because I get called a journalist all the time, and I don't, I don't think I am. It's like, is like, that a derogatory term in your head? I don't, I don't know how to take it. I'm like, I think I prefer to be a John Ronson or one of those guys. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, when I do get called that, I, every so often I'm like, I 
okay, I'll take it, but I'm really not. I mean, it just so happens I've got you know bylines and this, that, and the other, but I don't think What's I'm a What's bylines? Um, so if you've written for somewhere, like, so I've written for Vice, um, Huffington Post, BBC, um, Independent, they're bylines. So where you've had your name written underneath your story. Oh, got it, right. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I technically... A lot of people do say that I'm a journalist. You do sound like one. <laughs> oh, God. I don't know if I, I'm going to well, back no, off. No, sorry, I didn't mean you sound like one. It says you're, the end result sounds like you're a journalist. You don't sound like... Well, I don't know. I've never interviewed a journalist. There but. will be journalists out there going, shut the fuck <laughs> like, You don't know what you're talking Because like, a good journalist, because I do know good journalists, they are worth their weight in gold. Like, there are some brilliant ones out there that really study, go to the sources. and you know, like. Oh, Adam Curtis. Would you class him as a good one? Um, again, I don't really know that much. No. I, okay. I, I hold my hands up that um, the realms... He's more a documentary filmmaker, I think people might, might say. What, was, what kind of... Bitter Lake, um, watched over by, by Machines of Loving Grace. He did... Um, worked did a bit with Charlie Brooker when he was doing Screen Wipe. Oh, right. He did those inserts or those short mini documentaries. He did an amazing one on Rupert Murdoch. Nice. It was it was talked about how Murubon moved to this country, what he experienced, very kind of anti-establishment type thing. He was uh, all about. Um, well, I don't do a massive disservice now, but essentially the, rever- the reverie you would have for the, the royals and never to be criticised. He immediately um, you know, the Profumo affair and things like that. He just dug into all the establishment and said they're they're um, contradicting themselves, you know, and. Um, and yeah, and then obviously, this, you know, wherever he's gone from there. But he's done some uh, really good stuff. Bitter, uh, uh, he also Bitter Lake. What's the other one most recently? Bitter Lake was about Afghanistan, about the history of the British involvement in Afghanistan. Oh, I'll definitely look that one up. That one's fascinating because when you realise that Afghanistanis were almost war, were, before the a change, they were actually more Western in like the sixties. I think it is. They were all, you know, you, you'd recognise Western outfits and things like that. All the, all the universities. But anyway, um, anybody who's worked worth... with Charlie Brooker, I'm there. Yeah, totally. <laughs> For me, he's like one of my, yeah. you know, top favourite people of, in life. <laughs> and, and that's why I, I love documentarians in particular because I think I'm, I'm such a fan of film, and yeah. I think there's, that medium is is where I'm particularly fascinated and, and really I'm always looking for tips and, and yeah. good documentaries. Yeah, totally. If, uh, what about Louis Through then? Just real quick on just on the subject. Do you like him? Is he gone? I do. I do like Louis Through. I think again he's got a very big self awareness of like, you know, that kind of almost. Uh, this is going to be a massive disservice to him, but you know that kind of carry on nod of like a wink to the camera of like <laughs> all saucy that kind of. I think Louis Through perfectly pulls that off he, he know I think he's got an awareness that when he's in a situation of like okay this is how this is looking I know where this is going yeah, yeah that kind of a, a gentle kind of push along the yeah. stream of like yeah yeah go this direction so I like him but, um yeah I do but I think there's some who, I'm trying to think of some ones that I really think stick out um I mean I've worked and this is going to be completely name dropping but I've worked with um, documentary crews there's there's some guys out in Canada uh, Brett Harvey and Adam Scorgi um, and Stephen Green Adam Scorgi has produced um, Iron Bruce Lee um, oh, yeah. he's got a new one coming out with Danny Trejo um, called Inmate Number One I think it is uh, Ice Guardians which is on Netflix at the moment Wow, uh, which is also Brett Harvey directing I love those guys. I've worked with them, and I would say that, but they produce stuff that is just so of the now. You know, they, they, they were 
before the internet generation took hold. Their first documentary is called The Union, and it got it went online, it got ripped off and went online, and it got like 100 million hits overnight. And this was back in about 20, uh, about 2008, I think it was. So yeah. before, it was one of the first films to really take off over, overnight. What was it about? Uh, that one's about marijuana. So it was about oh. the, the Canadian BC industry. There's a thing called BC Bud, which was um, a big old brand of cannabis out there. And of course, it's legal now in Canada. So they, <laughs> they did their job. You know, I, think, oh. I think their film has got a lot to... It did get shown in, in the Canadian Parliament um, to, to show like, oh, look, this is a load of bollocks. What's going on here? Look at how this is playing out in our social scenes. Let's do something about it. So they, you know, they, they're, they, they won't call themselves activists, but their film has certainly been used for activism. Uh, that's the kind of documentary I think is good, where there's, they think that reform needs to happen. Yeah. Do you see the Dirty Money documentaries on Netflix? No, I need to. Oh, mate, I think we're, we're hopefully close to getting one of the ladies on there nice. for an interview. Um, yeah, I won't go into that in detail, but it's amazing. Really, really good. Really inspired my, uh, some of my team here. We've got some people who've studied law and they're not gone into law and come and worked here. And they, they want to reform and change things, but they think that law is not the place to do that. Yeah. Um, and so um, it really inspired them for some of the uh, talks they've put on. But, I won't, but anyway, I'll put, no, link, I'll put totally, links to you yeah, in the, the things. That's, that's, that's what I need to watch. Did you want to be a documentary filmmaker when you were like in your teens? Um, I, I liked film. I don't know if documentary is on my radar because I don't think... So my teens would have been from... God, this is owning up again, isn't it? But from 1993 until 1999, that would have been my official team, t- team tenure. Yeah, um, that's the And same can you think of many documentaries back then that really stick out? Because the only thing that... Again, because of the evolution of the industry, it's a lot more accessible now because of the funding and the distribution... But when we were younger, the only real documentaries that ever really got anywhere were things like Panorama and the, the for TV documentaries. Can you think of any big blockbusters? <laughs> Do you know what I thought of? The Ghost Night. Do you remember the ghost one? What's oh it called? My... Is that the one with... Um... It was on Halloween. And the, there was the, a... the, uh, the one with Sarah Green. It could, I don't know the name. So, so the one that was um, it was done straight faced. Yes, but it was actually a work. They were, we're live here. Yes, yeah, we're live here, and someone got uh, someone got pulled under the stairs. I That's think. it. Yeah, and they went. Oh my god, it was disgusting. You smelled cabbages or something like yeah. that. And, and, and then I couldn't watch it to the end. I'm getting goosebumps. I know. Now thinking about it. If you got <laughs> exactly. <them. laughs> at the end, genuinely. Yeah, like. genuinely. <laughs> Isn't that weird? And at the end, someone was like, "Oh my god, didn't you see the per- the man was in the curtains, or it was something it was, like it was that?" Pipes. Yeah. Pipes. Because the noises that got made... Right, yes. The kids started calling it pipes. So whenever there was noises in the house, it was only the pipes, and then that, got, that was what the ghost was called. Yeah. Yeah, it was. It was Sarah Green, and um, Michael Parkinson was the straight man in the studio. And at the end, Michael Parkinson gets possessed. <laughs> oh, God, it took a cliff drop. And it is, it is such a cult classic now, that really is. That, yeah. And I think it's only our generation that are going to understand that. I, yeah. I think anybody else would like, because, like, you know, obviously Blair Witch followed and, and all that sort of thing. Yeah. So imagine, imagine <laughs> Britain's Got Talent or something like that getting possessed and playing it really straight. That was what our generation dealt with, dealt with on that show, I yeah. think, is a good way of saying Yeah. That, that, I remember thinking, why would they trick everyone? Is that even legal? Yeah, yeah. There were so many complaints. There, there was just... uh, yeah, I remember that. I'm, trying, I'm just trying to Google now. I'm sure it was 1995 Ghost Watch. documentary. Ghost Watch, that yeah. was it. That was it, exactly. 
It is a classic for people for, of our generation. I'm sure it's on, I bet it's on YouTube, it's got to be, isn't it? Yeah, it must be. And also the guy from, was, it, was his name Steve Jones? He, he did like Motormouth and things like that. He was a kid's presenter. Yeah. So again, they tapped into the psychology of it. Get Sarah Green, who was yeah. a kid's presenter from Going Live. Yeah. Get her in there and get him possessed. That's, they were totally trying to mind <laughs> hack us, weren't they? Yeah, mind hack. Bastards. Is, I, that, is that a phrase you use in your day-to-day job? No, this is just, I've just coined it. <laughs> just coined it. I was like, wow. I didn't want to say bylines and mind <laughs> hacks. <laughs> And uh, what was the other one? Po- uh, podcast dogging or something? I, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> verbal dogging. Was yeah. it verbal dogging? <laughs> verbal dogging. I'm sure oh, if, we, if we look that up, there's bound to be a website. Yeah, there'll be a band as yeah. well. So, um, so, yeah, you're right. Documentaries, thinking about it. I, I think back, I, I've seen documentaries in my kind of 30s, I guess, early, late 20s, early 30s. And thought, wow, I'd love to, I'd love to do this. Mm. Go out there, immerse yourself in something, and then never know if you're ever going to find the end to the story. Like, yeah, I um, I met the guy who financed Searching for Sugar Man. Oh wow! Yeah, and he he literally dropped it in. Oh, and we also did that. And I was like, shut up. That is, that's nice. like a, a really important, I think, artifact yeah. in terms of, you know, what that. The fact that it's all true and, you know, and this guy went missing. What, what, what stand out to you documentary-wise? I've, there's been a few that are really, like, in my early days of kind of getting into political activism, I suppose we would have to call it, um, the ones that stood out was the union. That was what got me involved, and it was through that link that then got me into doing The Culture High, which was uh, one of the films that I've got a producer credit on, which is this, basically the sequel to The Union, but not quite. Mm. It was more of a global one. Um, and that was the one that got us um, tenuously in line for an Oscar. Um, wow. we, yeah, we To get long-listed for an Oscar, you have to go through a lot of procedures. Yeah. And it just so happened this film did, and it was announced it was in the, in the running. So for about a month, it was like, this could happen. I got in the local paper and all that That's sort of thing. so cool. In Gillingham. Um, sorry? In Gillingham. I'm from, well, I'm from uh, uh, just outside there, a town called Sittingbourne, which is... Sittingbourne? Yeah, yeah. Oh, you know it? Yeah. No, I'm, I'm, I'm from Brentwood, Essex. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. yeah. See, no one knows that way. place, because I always have to say, like, oh, Chatham or something like that, because most people know Chatham. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Oh, my word. Well, a lot of people, where we are, we're in Devonshire Square, opposite Liverpool Street Station. A lot of people commute into Liverpool Street or, you know... Where do you commute? Is it London? I, I either go Victoria or St Pancras. Oh. I tried to go to St Pancras because it's so much nicer. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, they, they were from, they'd be around from around here quite often. Oh, my word. Yeah, yeah we are a commuter town. Like, yeah. half our population comes up to London. And, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I got in my local rag of, like, local <laughs> guy in line for an Oscar, and I'm like... <laughs> Local man wins Oscar. <laughs> and, of course, like, because I, I joke my family, I'm like... Right, it's gone from being a long-listed for an Oscar, and now I think I've I think I've won five now. I think for like best documentary, like really? best director. So like my my ego within conversations with my family has expanded my resume into winning five Oscars and this. That, <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, oh, shut up. <laughs> oh, so talking about success, then how do you kind of define success in your life? It's oh, obviously, you're you're in the middle of your life. Yeah, we're not like you're not like somebody who's kind well, of touch thinking of. <laughs> yeah, let's hope you're not somebody who's thinking about retiring anytime soon. But so success is obviously an evolutionary thing. But how do you think about it? 
It's certainly not financially, because, mm. yeah, I've got a whole story on that. It's, it's because of um, the, uh, the disability world, uh, which is I'm also involved in, um, we, st- we still haven't figured out how people of fluctuation dis- fluctuating disabilities can find good ways of earning and, and sustain that. So I don't, totally don't think in terms of financial success. Um, I, think, I think, and this, this is going to be really hippie, but I think it has to be how about how it makes you feel. I think that if, for example, for me, if I can sit down at the end of the day and go, right, I've earned this rest, I can sit here and I can zone out in front of some trash telly, <laughs> knowing that I've got that glow of, like, OK, I've done something, I've achieved, that, I think, is, is, is good enough. I think it has to be that ingrained self-belief that you've done something that you're proud of. So, yeah, you're judging that then. When you said... I've done something that was worth it. That's your internal judgment. Mm, yeah. Yeah, because I'm, I'm not someone... I, I, I'd rather be punched than praised. I don't accept praise very well. I'm, I'm, I just don't do it for whatever reason. I'm like, oh, shut up now, go away. Um, <laughs> so, like, so when I do get exposure for certain projects and that, I'm like, yeah, I'll just slip away. Like, for example, and, and again, I'm just dropping my whole CV into this, but when we did well at last year's uh, British Podcast Awards, we won... Um, Silver for Best Current Affairs and Smartest Podcast, which, when you saw the other nominees, like it was Blue Planet, it was Ed Miliband. No way. And we beat them. It's great. And it's ju- and if you see, be- as, as you know, if you see behind the scenes of a lot of podcasts, yeah. it's just quite often people in a room with, with a, you know, some rudimentary piece of equipment. Yeah. And then we ended up beating bloody Blue Planet. It's That's like, awesome. How did that happen? And that, again, got in the local news for it, but I, I was embarrassed. I was like, stop. Don't stop. And even to the point where you, afterwards the awards ceremony emails you and gives you laurels to put on your podcast covers. Yeah. And I asked uh, the Distraction Pieces Network guys, I was like, is it going to be a bit much if I put these on the, on, on the artwork? Because it just looks wanky <laughs> but I was like no you've got to go for it you've got to do it and, I, and it is it's that embarrassment of don't look at me having this success so don't look at me because I don't think I'm great but you might think I think I am yeah that's, that's, <laughs> I think that's the perfect way of summarising it is that you're in other people's head of like do they now feel like I've got an ego so yes. I think I'm being a twat but. okay this is, oh, this is interesting because this is a really interesting position you find yourself in so it People measuring you accurately, is that important to you? Yeah, and, and that is a really interesting subject for me specifically because I do feel like I've got two versions of me because of, because of my disability and because of my public, uh, and I use that in air quotes because I don't think I've got a profile, but because I've got some platforms that are quite exposed, I've got the public side and then I've got the private side, and they are so different, like massively different in the sense that my personal life is often a massive battle because of disability but the public profile is quite sheeny and glossy and like I said you know won these awards I've got these associations with awards that isn't me at all they're just things that have just come my way the person that's going to be really really dealing with it is the one that's going to be slumped on the sofa in the evening that's just exhaustive because of what (laughs) they've done pouring themselves into the project disability so I've got um 
ME, which is myriagic encephalitis, which I can't say. And <laughs> oh, no. Just do ME. <laughs> yeah, that's why it's nice shorthand. It's like, great. doesn't make anyone. <laughs> Give me the illness I can't pronounce. That's yeah. perfect. <laughs> and I've had it since the age of officially eight. So I've been housebound for most of that time. Oh, no way. Um, and that's why you get that weird never quite working out who you are because of being housebound 90% of your life. Sure. And then having 10% of it being on stages in some way, whether it's a... Uh, I was in a band for 10 years and we was on the London and Kent circuit, so we was on a literal stage, or the stages <laughs> that I've got now with the podcast and the films and the writing. There's always a stage that the 10% of me languishes on, and then you've got the 90% the of me over here, which is just, you know, dead in a chair. And that's why they're so difficult to balance up. Do you... But you must enjoy both of those as well. You must enjoy the the privacy and the you know the lack of people you know kind of challenging or, or pushing agenda on. Or, you know, I guess you can. Is that what it's like at home, or have you? I've, I'm, I'm blessed with having brilliant people around me. Like my yeah. family are amazing. And the, my extended uh, sort of network, whether it's colleagues, colleagues that are now friends, they are all brilliant. And what it boils down to is how much people trust you. So, because it can be very easy to... Anybody that's got a disability, especially one that's invisible, because you know, you know, I'm kind of in that bracket of in, invisible illness, yeah. along with like, people with MS. You know, ME and MS are quite similar. Um, and also things like Crohn's as well, people that are dealing yeah. with that. Yeah. That invisible illness can mean that you can, you can almost present yourself in a way that's a mask. You know, like, okay, I can hide the disability vaguely. And then there are times where you almost want to be cut a bit of allowance because of my, my cognitive function will fluctuate. So right. there may be days where, like, I'm, I'm not talking too badly now, but there might be days where I'll be just completely dribbling on this mic because I just can't formulate a word. Are you experiencing tiredness or exhaustion? Yeah, it's constant. It's progressional. So I know that at the end of today, I am going to be in a slump at the end of this. Yeah. Um, which I know that's just the way that, you know, you, you allow for that. It's like budgeting. So if you've got 50 quid for the week to... to yeah. That's, that's You're heavy. rationing your energy. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for spending some. <laughs> no, it's my I'm like, I would have come to you if, <laughs> <laughs> if you wanted me to. Oh, mate. So, so, yeah, so, so when you have got that, that, sometimes you want to almost kind of wear it on your sleeve, though, because if you are acting in a way where you're a little bit self-conscious or you're not performing in a way that you know you can, then you almost want to hold this flag up going, this isn't me, this really isn't. Completely. Get, get me in like two hours' time or get me tomorrow and you'll get a different version. Can diet help control it? Not really, but you can be sensible. You definitely yeah. need to be sensible of, you know, do the right things. You know, if you yeah. put stuff into the body that you know is going to be like these things we've got in front of us, these... They're amazing. Wafer, <laughs> the just way. to describe them, they're wafer chews with like a sugary cream filling. Yeah. Um, they're, they're Polish and they're amazing. <laughs> and, yeah, if you was to have too many of those, you would definitely feel it. Yeah. You'd crash because of just, like, the sugar high and then bang, there yeah, you go. Big so, yeah, I've, ra- I've been rationing slightly, but <laughs> they are amazing. We'll get stew on them because he, he loves them. Yeah, we'll just burn through yeah. them. Oh, right, that's interesting. So, 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 so when you're looking at success in your life and when you're looking at what you wanted to achieve, obviously you're um, inhibited physically with that from an early age. So how did you deal with that? How did you deal with that mentally? 
Well, that's where it's, it is a strange line that I've taken because I've kind of now poured it on you what my CV is of like, you know, the films, the writing, the podcasting. I never intended to get into any of that. Like, I, if, if you was to talk to my 14-year-old self, I don't think they'd have much... I probably wanted to be a wrestler because I, <laughs> I, I, I love wrestling. What kind of... Oh, not the stuff that yeah. everyone likes. WWE, yeah. I don't understand it. No, <laughs> I, I, I don't I get it. Is, is it made up, or is it stuff that you, that's made up that you like? Yeah, yeah, it's 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 a soap opera. So just <laughs> just as you know, you, you're going along with EastEnders, you're going along with that as well. So, but it's it's there's there's a really kind of intellectual argument to wrestling because it used to be presented as real, but then it was like they couldn't maintain that. There's a word Was that called, the Hulk Hogan days? Yeah. They tried to put it that it's a... And before that, there's, the industry was cloaked by this word kayfabe. Kayfabe meant, right, under conditions of keeping this involved in the industry and only people in the industry know the workings of it. Kayfabe died in about nine... In this kind of late 90s. Yeah. That's when the, the curtain opened. It's like, OK, we can't hold this back anymore. It's fake get involved in that side of things. So there's a real intellectual argument. To, Can to politicians it. do that? Um, yeah, I think... <laughs> they yeah, should do that too. That is a good example, actually. I think... I think... I love the word kayfabe. I think that it can apply to a lot of things. I think politics is one of them. Because it is. It's that, right, you get a politician on their own, you'll get a very different conversation to them if they're in front of a camera. Right. Or if they're in... Because I know loads of politicians, and a lot of them I like... There are ones that we've spoken about that I don't. <laughs> and there are ones that they're a very different person on camera or in the Houses of Commons to what they are on your, in front of your face. Yeah. And I think the word kayfabe, I think, absolutely applies to that. Yeah. I think we need to use the word kayfabe in common lexicon. I already do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And also, going back to what I was saying about illness, that there's kind of kayfabe to illness as well. Because I've, I've really struggled speaking about it for so, so long. I've done it recently... Um, over the last two years where I've just thought, oh, whatever, you know, just kind of... I, I feel like I almost owe it to other people because I've got a little bit more of a platform. Yeah. Kind of just kind of open up about it. But you still you still do hide it, and that is, that is kayfabe. It's illness kayfabe of, you know, don't show the inner workings, put, put out the finished product and nothing else. I find that so weird because I find um, people's struggles or people's disabilities or any kind of setback they've had in their life I find that really fascinating because they've had they've had a different experience to other people they've learnt they've learnt get workarounds and hacks themselves yeah. and that just makes that's just I think it's more interesting for people like, some of the people I think are the most boring are those who just haven't had to try <laughs> do you know what you think? Yeah, I, I what seek you mean. out the broken and the, and the people who've got um, just some experience behind them. Um, like I remember talking to a friend, and she was presented herself as like just super, super intelligent, super cool, all the rest of it. And then I found out that she was ill, like, and nearly died. So ill, literally in and out of hospital for like two years, therefore homeschooled, therefore mm. continues to homeschool. And parents had moved around about, God knows, about eight times different countries. Um, and... I was like, what? This is so interesting. This, obviously, it was you know, a difficult experience for her, but I think at the, out of the back of it, that um, challenge... This is actually a good segue. <laughs> but that challenge really um, brought out the best in her. Do you think that your um, setbacks have done that for you? 
Yeah, absolutely. You can't get away from... If you, if you were to assess your own character, it's, it's all made up of, of experience. You know, it's your whole life rests on your shoulders. So how do you pull that apart? So my life is... Uh, you mentioned homeschooling. I didn't even have that. There was, I literally had no schooling. Like, not a... Si- you can count ages? on one. Um, from, I, from, I did two years in kind of junior school. I don't know what that is in modern day, like, year five, six, whatever. I've got no idea. No, I'm, I'm in the old kind of lexicon. <laughs> Me too, yeah. They say, oh, that's the year at 13. I was like, yeah, it's like count 13. the fingers, like, yeah, I don't yeah. know. So, yeah, so I did a couple of years in junior school, and that was it. So I kind of, I kind of stopped going to school at the age of eight and then had nothing after that. Blimey. Um, I managed to come out somehow with, with two GCSEs, which was English and maths, I think it was, yeah. which, again, I don't know how, because I, I had no schooling whatsoever. Huh. And so that process of being fundamentally self-taught in some sort of way, because my parents are brilliant, again, because they trusted me. They thought, well, he's inquisitive enough that he's going to find his own roots. And also... Did they, they think that? Yeah, and also because of the system at the time, because it was sort of late 80s, early 90s, there was just nothing. So they were constantly having to battle for there something. There weren't any options then? No. no. So they were battling to try and get me somewhere, and it just didn't work Never because worked, was just, no. there wasn't anything. I suppose by the time you got six months into something, the things you're battling for, as in you may not join in that year, Yeah. you've got to try and every year you have to almost reset, right? Exactly, yeah. So what, what are you battling for? Is it, is it homeschooling? Is it trying to find some sort of access route into it? And, and there just wasn't anything. I, I like to think we got better, but from what I know, we still don't really cater for... Same as working environments. We just, we, as I said earlier, we don't cater for anything. We, we, we term disability in terms of iconography, so that, that wheelchair access, yeah. the, the car parking space that's got the wheelchair. Yep. We don't think in terms of, right, that person doesn't fit a nine-to-five day job. Yeah. What can we do to try and help that? Yeah. We just, we're not thinking in those terms still. No. So, prior example, if I'm, not, I'm being more honest here than what I ordinarily would, because normally I'd keep this quite re- really back. But prior example, so I've, you know, I've, I've unceremoniously laid my CV on you of, like, the <laughs> awards and this, that and the other. Yeah. So, you know, I, it's clear that I can achieve, but none of that's been done through any kind of help through the systems or anything like that. It's just literally me going, right, let's try and pull something out here. And we need to adjust that in society. We need to make sure that we're making the most... I don't want to say the word vulnerable because that that almost insinuates weakness because most people with disability aren't weak. They're the opposite. They're strong as anything. They they know their life and what they've been through and that challenge has spearheaded their existence. So therefore, as you said, that strength that come with the friend that you knew that had been through everything, mm. that is so true. Mm. Those experiences make the character. So why aren't we doing more in workplaces where we go, OK, don't do nine to five, but if you can do this, that and that, or set your own agendas, let's, let's have a conversation about that. Yeah. And we're just not. There's a great company called Autocon. You made me think of them there. And all of their programmers have a level of autism. <clears throat> And so they only allow people in who've got a spectrum, you know, I don't know how you quantify it, but... Yeah, on the autistic spectrum. Autism spectrum, mm. yeah. And um, they, uh, the lady who runs it, she says, so what these guys do is they are absolutely forensic on code. So um, 
we can let we can kind of set them off on building code and screening code and we get these amazing stats of like our code is super clean super efficient no bugs and errors and things like this but they need special care in terms of like you were talking about of in the day um making sure they're not near um passing traffic of people or noisy mm, stuff yeah. making sure letting them wear their own headphones if they're having a, a moment where they don't feel they're being productive or they're uh, disturbed or, or not focused being allowed to go and do whatever they need to do mm-hmm. and the entire environment is customised and you know lots of natural light uh, you know just kind of just ba- I mean you would think everyone would want this <laughs> to be fair yeah. but you know um, she said you know they're particularly susceptible some of the people they've got there um, and uh, it, they're, they're, they're winning n- numerous contracts as well as awards and it, it just looks fan- fantastic as um what they're managing to achieve, but it's always a startup. They started in a WeWork. The building we're in right now is obviously a WeWork, small little communities of companies foster and build, and but normally from like two people to like maybe eighteen or whatever. And that's where they were. They were about twelve people. Um, I just thought this isn't happening in in big. Well, my audience is like banks and finance and all that mm. kind of thing. Well, I've got some uh, clients who've experienced um, kids with autism and then they've become the internal champion for that. They call it like diversity and inclusion mm. uh, in, the, in our businesses. And, um, but still, you're massively educating people because people are just, because it's not in the public perception as much, like you said, there's, there's totems of, oh, that means a physical disability. They don't have that use of their legs in the way you know normally do. Therefore, they're in a wheelchair. Mm-hmm. But people with dyspraxia, dyslexia, or um, um, Asperger's, anything like this, it's, or ME, it's it's all something like you said. It's it's um, yeah hidden. If 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 you're not consistent, then there's not a lot of room for you in our working systems. So, as I said, my energy and and, and health system, like anybody that's on that that kind of fluctuating illness uh, scale, whether that be ME, MS. Uh, Parkinson's, those kind of, even cancer, you know, someone that's going through cancer at that given time, you're, you're going to be going through your day of not knowing where your own energy system or, or pain system is going to take you. Yeah. And it's a good example you use of autism because it's the, there's a lot of crossovers within that because um, for people like myself, the sensory aspect of the world is what drains you. So under lights, I've, in my bag, I've got uh, prescription sunglasses to try and combat the light as much as possible so it doesn't give a migraine. Um, the, the, the being around people like I'd, I'd much rather be one on one than in a group, I hate mm. being in even to the point where I've always said I'd much prefer being on a stage to in a crowd, mm. I'd rather be in front of people than in it because being in it you're constantly having to be aware of what that person's doing, am I giving enough and, and that is kind of where I can see where autism is, is kind of crossing over into what I do as well or what I've got because that sensory aspect yeah. is what drains and it happens for everybody most people get that it's just the average person doesn't realize that their energy bar is going down that's right and they're dealing with stress like that's a really important part um you said there about when you're in a crowd and you're having to work out your 3d position in the crowd who's around where you're treading on someone you're trying to listen to the conversation trying to contribute and make sure and trying to be positive and happy and smile the rest yeah. of it Someone said that that's the most stressful situation you can ever be in is a, is a house party. Yes. <laughs> was, but uh, everyone loves the idea of a house party. But yeah. you're absolutely right. You've got... The, uh, I would definitely feel like that. A majority of people I speak to are like, I prefer uh, a place where you can have a chat. There's good music in there, but you can have a conversation. Small group of people who are all getting on. And it's not this kind of like... 
the, the conversation can be sometimes a bit banal, like, let's tell a funny story. I go into Partridge, <laughs> but let's tell a funny story. Um, and, and that, it's nice to be able to sit down and, and share something, and people go, oh, yeah, I know what that feels like. Yeah. yeah. That's kind of more rewarding, I think. And I love that you said you'd rather be on a stage. I'm just going to deal with all of you at once. Yeah, that's it. That is it. always it. It is a case of, right, if I'm on stage, I can control it as opposed to being someone that's, that's susceptible to all these caveats. Yeah. And, and as you said, I think that there's a, there's a term that's been coined quite recently called hangxiety. Um, hangxiety? Yeah, for that very reason of hanging out anxiety, of, you know, oh, God, am I doing enough? Am I doing enough? And, and once you have these conversations, most people do suffer with it yeah. one way or another. They, I'm starting to feel like um, everything I grew up on was, like, wrong, and actually the way I felt was right. Don't you think? Yeah, yeah. The more you get podcasts and you can go into the nuances or find people who like... So I'm going to get onto computers in a minute. <laughs> Maybe you like to be obsessed like I was with my Commodore Amiga and things like, like that. ZX Spectrum. Is that what you had? <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you know, you can... When you find these communities of... Like, there's the Retro Hour, which is an awesome podcast. And... Um, they interview, like, my heroes of uh, people who have designed computer games, sometimes computer game music, which is just as, uh, you know, immersive. Yes, and, yes. And, 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 you know, and, and uh, visceral, what have you. And I've, um, I, I was like, oh, wow, there's a whole podcast for this. So I started to then Google all the people that created the games and the music that I like and try and find if they're on this podcast. And um, we get to, if the, I hope this is going to come off, but we're going to um, meet one of the guys, David Whittaker, who um, created probably the most influential uh, soundtrack for a game called Shadow of the Beast. Do yeah, you oh, God, yeah. Do you I remember it? Yeah, yeah. yeah what did you play it on? Do you remember the console? I'm thing? pretty sure it was on Spectrum, wasn't it? Yeah, it was on a lot of... It was converted to every platform, I think. It was on Sega, yes, Commodore, that's Atari. I think it was, was it Mega Drive. Mega Drive. I'm f- yeah, I'm fairly sure it was Mega Drive I had it, actually. Yeah, yeah. it could well have been. Mm. Yeah. Uh, but he did the music to that, and it was really... Uh, you know, I'm going to go and interview him. Oh, nice. And I'm like, dude, you know... Because uh, I then found the um, instrument he made it on. I went and bought that instrument. But these kind of things, you kind of you can unpick them now with technology, and yeah. you can do a deep dive and go. Do you know? Because when I was a kid, my mum was worried about me. She genuinely thought I had a medical condition because it was a beautiful sunny day, and she went, "On your bike." I'd be like, "I really want to just." drawing photon paint on my <laughs> yeah. computer. I'm trying to, you know, do a replica of this, like, a Porsche that I had a poster of or something. It just, yeah, but not, or like I use ProTracker to assemble samples and make little kind of things, or a little stickman animation. And she was like, there's definitely something wrong with him. And they were really worried at one point. I was like, I just, this is super, cre-, you know, well, I wasn't saying this at the time. I was like, I just want to do it. But yeah. I just, you know, looking back on it now, I'm like, there wasn't anything wrong with it, you know. And I've become a social person. You're obviously a social person. You're interested in people. You seem fairly well adjusted. But you had things that you were interested in. I, I'm going to point out a book because I'm, I'm reading it at the moment because I'm due to have him on the Stop and Search podcast. And it's slightly a departure because the podcast I do is called Stop and Search and it's about drugs, addiction, mental health. And I've, I saw this book and I was like, I'm pretty sure this kind of segues into it. And it's called Lost in a Good Game by, um, by Pete... I still don't know how to put it. Etchels, is that? Etchels, yeah. yeah. Uh, I'd so recommend it. From what, everything you just said, it's in this book. Really? Um, to the point where I'm trying to formulate a panel with him. I'm going I'm to invite you on the panel because oh, what you've just said is just everything that, we, that this book discusses. Of It shouldn't be a point of snobbery of no. a kid being in their room 
because video games are participatory. Right. You're just as the same as that you've got no issues of someone sitting down and reading a book because you think, oh, no, that's wholesome. You know, they're learning. Yeah. But we've got snobbery over kids that, or adults that play video games. Yeah. Because it, it feels like it's isolation. It feels like, the, like you said, the exact example, why aren't you out there on your bike? It's a nice it's day. It's a sunny day everything in that book so i completely recommend that you've got to read this i'm definitely gonna read this that looks fantastic like i said i'm totally gonna invite you on based on that because yeah gonna, we need me. that conversation yeah that's fantastic so, so, so tell me just going back at home because i'm trying to now now i'm adjusting to what your world view was and, and how did you get information if you were majoritively at home how what shaped the view of your world well, again, this, this really does lead into what we just said here about video games, because just as the same as that video games have got a stigma, um, and to a degree, I mean, it certainly wasn't educational, but I had the Sega Mega Drive, and that was my favourite console. Loved yeah, it. Yeah. Um, but TV has got a stigma. We still think in terms of, no, that's take your brain out. That's, yeah. That isn't giving you any education. But... I would say, quite literally, everything that I know about the world is through the TV. Um, and, you know, I don't do too bad. I'm by no means am I, am I any kind of anchoring. But I would certainly say that, well, you know, some of the people that I mix with in politics, I certainly know more than what they do. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and I think that you can get a good world view through the TV screen. Yeah, I, I completely agree. There's... Um Obviously, if you think back to before, there was many, many channels. Did you? So did you get Sky at some point? No, nope, we had just we had one to three, and <laughs> Channel Four you could get if you put a booster in on a good day. Booster on a good day, <laughs> and it was still fizzy. Really? Yeah. So we had we had three channels. Was that then? Just your town was just a little bit out of the way of the. We, we, there was a thing, because oddly enough, I had this discussion yesterday, my other half, but there was a thing called Pipeline, can you remember that? Which was where Sky did get piped in through, through some kind of magical undercurrent. I don't. We had a, we had a so we were in Brentwood and then um, Gidea Park. So I think we had a satellite. Hang on, we had a massive satellite, I'm thinking about it. We had one at the back of the garden. Oh, wow. My da- yeah, we, my dad had a, a, he had a company. We did really well, I guess, as a family. And, yeah, he had a massive satellite. So, yeah, that's why it was like that. What, like a proper big land? Not one home. of those ones where, like, you're getting Azerbaijan <laughs> or something. But it was, yeah, it was probably the size of this table, which is useless. Yeah. And why I'm only just new to podcasting. But, yeah, it's probably about, um, what, diameter so, of a metre and up a bit? Yeah, imagine, like, a good patio round table. Yeah. That's kind of <laughs> what we're dealing with. And he did, because, like, before... Sky isolated it down into that slick black thing they got now. It yeah. was it was this size. It was giant and white. It was on the side of your house, which had to have some kind of structural yeah. integrity to it, or else it wouldn't take it. At all. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Or in a clearing. Yeah. So yeah. therefore you had to have some kind of ground. Or there were those people who used to paint it brickwork, so it, so it blended in. Ooh, Did you I've ever see? Oh, that. that was brilliant. That there was people awful. who were ashamed of it, and they That's didn't like, want it poking out. <laughs> it's like the opposite of Trump loyal, like <laughs> just sticking out, but it looks like it's flat. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so yeah, that was yeah. I, the, the days of Sky, it was like the dream, you know, yeah. Because we had we had a decent video collection, but a lot of them were just recorded off the telly, yeah. Um, which was a whole other experience. Again, if you if you if you missed out that generation of recording stuff taping. on the telly, yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. Well, I'm doing it now because I'm now taping off of I say taping off of YouTube. So I've got a YouTube. There's a really awesome little app called Airy, and you can just on a Mac. 
you can literally just click on a YouTube link and I think it just downloads the entire video nice. or WAV, probably illegal, to, um, to your local drive. So I use it for, if I do like, uh, I do music production in my spare time. So if I ever do a sample of something, I'll do like a 1970s interview, find some funny little thing oh, they say, trip it out and put it in there and oh, bury please it. please do one on Ghostwatch. On Ghostwatch, <laughs> you know what? I'm actually going to make a note of that. I've got my little sample um, place to get the samples from and do Ghostwatch. Because you, 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 you need that kid calling out pipes and, and, and the, uh, the, the whole um, Michael Parkson at the end. There's something you can do with that. Yeah, the possession. Yeah. <laughs> so good. So, yeah, we go back to kind of um, you, you, you at home and consuming the, world inf- the world's information through t- TV, newspapers? No, no, because no. unfortunately my mum and dad used to get the sun. Which... <laughs> or today? Did you get the Today newspaper? Do you remember that one? Uh, I actually don't, it was, no. It was, yeah. So when today ended, you needed to decide, are you going to go towards the sun? Are you going to go Daily Mail? We went Daily Mail. Oh, wow. That's it. But I don't think commitment. Daily Mail was as bad as it. It wasn't like Daily Mail Island, the, the Charlie Brooker yeah. thing from TV Go Home. It wasn't that bad. But it was, uh, it obviously went that direction. So you didn't get newspapers because of the sun? Yeah, they, and they, they cancelled it about two years ago because I, I put pressure on them for so many years of like, you, do you realise what you're funding here? And, yeah. and they finally cancelled it. But yeah, so to say I got information off the newspaper was definitely not the case because it was the sun. And that was the sun back in like late 80s, early 90s where boobs were just all over it. That was, that was the only thing that paper was for. It was like, it was just a slightly upmarket sun. Daily Star. Yeah, 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 yeah it yeah. really was. And <laughs> yeah, so... And I think they had a decent enough TV guide, bless them. Yeah, um, that's quite sweet. Because, again, you've got to remember back in our day... God, I can't remember what saying that. But we didn't have digital um, yeah. TV guides. We had to get everything off a of paper of, like, oh, what's coming up? And, oh, and we, especially at Christmas... We had T-Fax. Oh, of course, C-Fax and Teletext, yes. Teletext. yes. Were they the same thing? Uh, I think C-Fax was BBC. I think Teletext was ITV, I oh, think. Oh, Nice. Can you remember? And, and this is again. <laughs> this podcast is turning. Do you remember the nineties and the eighties? Yeah, let's just do a nostalgic podcast. Yeah, yeah. that's going to have an audience, definitely. <laughs> but for anybody that wasn't there, bless you, um, you should have been. Um, it, we, there was a thing called Bamboozle on Channel Four, and it was it was an interactive game where they asked you a question. You had to press the coloured corresponding button to get the... It was a quiz show, but through Teletext. Wow, yeah. you spent some time on Teletext. Yeah. I, I must have done a deep dive into Teletext once. My dad was obsessed with the weather, and then wasn't there you could book, or maybe it's like a number to book a Benidorm Oh, yeah, there was, there was quite a lot of holidays on there. Yeah, yeah. holidays, that's it. Yeah. And also, yeah, te- you could Bamboozle. get the TV guide. And the other thing that was quite well known for was... You could get news on there, but it was... Quite often, like two days out of date. Really? Um, yeah, it would rotate, wouldn't it? It'd rotate every like couple of seconds. Yeah. To page two, and page then you had, if you missed that, you had to wait five you have minutes to, wait, to, to rotate back. <laughs> so, so you're there. <laughs> Damn it! Yeah. You know, wait for another fifteen minutes for that to roll round. Yeah, that, I need my news quick. <laughs> Give me teletext. <laughs> I need yesterday's news now. Someone needs to bring that back. Someone actually needs to do teletext for the modern generation. Surely, that I've always wanted this to happen. Why can't someone just start the eighties again? Yes. And everything that's been broadcast, just start broadcasting on YouTube. 
Can you imagine? I'd become addicted. Yeah. I think if I drank again, I think I'd just <laughs> sit down drinking. Because when you see the, the glow and the fuzziness of like the BBC Two logo with the stripes, oh, yeah. you know, and the, it was, was it like orange and brown and yellows and things like that? You know, probably the same colour as the sofa I was sitting on. Yeah. And you look at that, I just feel like everything's fine. Yeah. It, I, was, I was having a discussion recently with someone um, who, yeah, he, he's, he suffered with addiction. And he was he was uh, going back and he was googling some weird things. And you said earlier at the start of the conversation about how you do get caught in these YouTube traps. Of, yeah. of And I've done that now. I've got because of my play. I, I don't play many games now because of my eyes and they they just give me a migraine. But I I've got the PlayStation Four with all the kind of TV apps on it. So I've got you know like Netflix and yeah and BBC and that and YouTube's on there. And if I segue over into YouTube and start Googling stuff... Yeah. Googling. Googling on YouTube. <laughs> it's an acceptable term. Yeah. yeah, if you just Google stuff on YouTube, I, I have lost evenings to nostalgia. Yeah. So recently, and, and I will give you an award if you knew this, but can you remember there was a film about the village people... <laughs> No, and it got it used to get wheeled out late at night because it was a little bit it was a bit saucy as the village people. <laughs> but if, if you if you YouTube, what's it called? It's called You Can't Stop the Music, and I I absolutely a hundred percent recommend anybody to look up the intro of it. It is amazing. I'll put a link to it in there. It's it's got Steve Guttenberg. Oh wow! On roller skates going through New York City. Hang on, was it? If you think about the opening to uh, um, what's it called, a Police Academy. Do you remember him turning up at the police academy? Yeah, yeah. And what he was wearing? Yeah. He'd like he walked off the set of the village people straight into that. That that is actually He's wearing very super true. tight yeah. jean like shorts. Like a cropped crop top. Yeah. So belly button exposed. Probably. I had never thought of that. Yeah, that's why he I, that fits immediately in my mind that he'd be great in that. And every time, any time that Steve Guttenberg's bought up, I've got that Simpsons song in my head. You know, when they're doing the stone cutters of of who made Steve Guttenberg a star. <laughs> That always comes into my head when I'm thinking about that clip in particular. You know uh, Stuart Whiffin, who obviously does other podcasts that we Huckle both know, Huckle yeah. Listing and Off the Beaten Track and the Drunk Cast. He um, he told me recently that they're doing another police academy. Oh, because someone he knows m- met Steve, knows Steve Gutenberg, spoke to them, and he said, "We're doing it." Oh my god! It's all been it's all legit. I hope I can say that. This sure I can. this is like because. I've got a weird relationship with the police academies. I like, to, I like one is quite of its own, isn't it? It's, it's yeah. got some darkness there. Yeah. And then it just went into like carry on slapstick after that. It went yeah. like two, three, and then into four and five. Yeah. You're right. There is darkness. They, they deal with like things like racism yeah. and a whole bunch of, you know, things that weren't. Uh, yeah. It's so standalone that film, and then yeah. the sequel's just yeah weird after That's that. Standard. I can't believe we got into police academy. <laughs> <laughs> we segued from teletext to police academy. <laughs> Um, do some okay. Let's. I'm going to ask you some just some tough fire questions. Oh God! Right. What does dignity mean to you? Um, maintaining your own standards to make sure you. It happens a lot in my field because it's the the, the realm that I now work in is drug law reform, as I said, which is hotly contested. Because some people think no legalized drugs, you're going to you know it's, it's this world of hedonism you're creating. And of course, it's not that way at all. You're talking about saving lives. You're talking about control regulation and making things safe and if you was to say that in a political realm where people have got no previous idea of what that means you get a massive great roar and 
moralistic kind of things chucked at you, like, how dare you, you're morally corrupt. And of course, it's not that way at all. It's the whole don't go for the ad hominem. So an ad hominem is you're personally attacking someone in an argument. Yeah. Make sure Doesn't, you... Um, he do that, Philip Hitch, um, uh, the Hitchens guy? Yeah, believe it or not. Yeah. Okay. I've yeah. seen him do it. He, he takes people down and I think, yeah, go on, carry on, carry on. And that's a good example is that, yeah, Peter Hitchens is a weird one like that because he doesn't necessarily abide by the own standards that he sets for himself. Yeah. Which I think is, I think, what you need to do in life is always maintain your own standards and don't drop them for other people. Sure. Because other people can potentially make you lower your own sense of standard. That's right. And your argument's weakened and you, you know, yeah, you lose a sense of all that. Yeah. And don't don't go into it with a superiority complex of I'm better than you. Because if someone doesn't understand, that isn't their fault. You just need to explain something better. Yeah. So don't patronize. Um, Make sure you keep that steady position of, no, this is my point of view, and I'm going to explain it rationally. Yeah. Don't lose your call in a situation. I'm not, I haven't really got temper. I, I don't tend to, because it takes energy out of me. If, if I lose my temper, then I'm going to be knackered for it, so it's just not worth doing it. So make sure you maintain your own standard. I love that. I have to just think of like someone spraying an Uzi, going, no, <laughs> oh, no, no bullets left now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's a, yeah that's, a good, that's a good way of putting it. Um, do, you, do you think we need dissatisfaction in our lives? Yeah, I totally do. I think without that... I think that's almost like the main thing of, if, of making sure that that you get something out of a situation that makes you feel better in some sort of way, um, whether it's satisfaction in being p- proud of produ- a piece of work you produced yeah. or satisfaction of being okay with where you're at. Dissatisfaction can quite often mean you're looking over your shoulder yeah. and that is where problems come in. I've, I've got this um, this kind of really naff mantra of I don't know I'm not going to google it too much because if I start pulling it apart it's probably not going to hold weight but there's a picture of uh, Michael Phelps who is recognised as probably one of the best Olympians of all time because of the amount of gold medals he's won and I can't remember which Olympics it was it might have it might have been London it might have been the one before it but there's a picture of him against his hottest contested rival and they're neck and neck coming into the finish line. Michael Phelps knows he's retiring. He knows that this is his last chance to be crowned the greatest Olympian of all time. This up-and-comer, and, and as you can tell, I know the swimming well, well. <laughs> I know all the names. <laughs> all the names. Uh, so this, oh. other, this other dude. <laughs> <laughs> this geezer's coming up behind yeah, him. Aquaman, <laughs> he's coming along. And, and, and he's looking over his shoulder. He's taking his breath, looking at what Michael Phelps is doing as Michael Phelps is focused in on his lane and Michael Phelps wins. Yeah. So swim your own lane. Yeah. Keep your own standard. Yeah, I don't know why other people bother about how are other people are doing. Yeah. Every time, and I've probably been like that quite a lot of, probably, probably the most of my life was spent comparing myself to others. Um, not constantly, but I had that fallibility yeah. and I could be sucked into that world. And I think when I've been free, I've been like, just going to do this for me. It's, I'm enough for this. Yeah. Like you were saying, you're your own judge of it. And also remembering that like, Actually, I'm not going to give you my ones. I want your ones. How do you deal with moments of in extreme stress? Breathing. I know that sounds ridiculously no, naff, but m- always maintain a sense of breathing because what, what we can often do in, in terms of nerves is, is... You may want to do it now because I've been all tense listening. Yeah. yeah <laughs> I want to just you, relax now. When, well, you do. Once you need to be conscious of it. Like, drop your shoulders. Breathe lower down. And we, we all do it. We get into bad habits. Yeah. Because we're constantly having to breathe, or else we wouldn't be here, we get lazy. We forget how to do it. Yeah. So make sure, like I said, just 
bring yourself centered back down. You know, it's that kind of old Buddhist thing, like the mindfulness movement that's going on at the moment. You can, you can rip the piss out of it because it's got quite big, but there's a lot of sense within it. You know, just the basics of center yourself and just... Totally. So, yeah. You should be taught at schools, don't you think? Oh, God, I, I am such a big believer in, in the, the real fundamentals being taught at school. So, yeah, yeah a sense of, of being, a sense of confidence, a sense of, you know, keeping calm... But yeah. we're so focused on the academic side of things. And as, as you know, I've got no sense of academic. <laughs> yeah. I'm rubbish at that. To the point where I almost feel embarrassed in some... Because I've, I've written for the British Medical Journal. And I'm, I'm so embarrassed cool. at that because I know people like PhDs and proper bona fide scientists and doctors that have never got the chance to write for the British Medical Journal. I have. And I've had no schooling whatsoever. And yet these guys haven't done it. And I feel, I'm like, sorry, guys. I but that's, that's cognitive diversity. And that's what is, that's a massive issue. When you have people who go through the same process, you get group think, they all endorse each other. They, all, they also just think, like, that's the way you look at the world. And that's a massive issue with, um, some industries are better than others. The one I look after is, it's really bad. And yeah. it's a lens distortion around white men um, the next kind of breakdown is like white women in their 50s, roughly. Same with the men, 50s, 60s. Like there are not a lot of people leading and governing these companies who have got, yeah, they're black, so could be Afro-Caribbean and any kinds of, there's a thing like intersectionality. Have you come across that? Mm, yeah, yeah, a little bit. Not, yeah, not so even. it's like there's loads of different versions of, you know, uh, racism and loads of different versions of what you think diversity actually mm. is. Like, you, you may not think actually like a 50-year-old white gay man who's got dyslexia, dyspraxia and, you know, agoraphobia or something like that, um, that is our diverse candidate because they look a certain way. Like, if you look, it's like the Benetton advert type of thing. Yeah, like, yeah. everyone's a different colour, so we're all thinking in a different way. No, you're not. If mm. you all went to a red brick university in America... Yeah, you don't. You all think exactly the same. We all talk the same way. That is so true. And it goes back to what you're saying about disability as well, because we're still not having those big conversations about disability and diversity. And it's that same principle, is that what we can think of as disability isn't necessarily the, the prescribed structure of how society perceives it, if that yeah. makes sense, which I don't think it does. But it's, no, it's that, you know, we, we, we're so used to dealing with the veneer yeah. that we're just not thinking beneath that. And everybody has got their story and that kind of the sense of satisfaction question again make sure that you're you are the, the main character in your own story yeah um because it is so easy to look over your shoulder but no one's got your journey no one's got your story and no one can do it how you can do it yeah no absolutely that's that interesting thing isn't it like um now you can find your own little um people have had a similar story and background to you it can kind of if you think about technology, has that really helped your life then? Yeah, without... It's, it's a weird one, actually, because it's got benefits and it's got <laughs> detractors because it, without YouTube and Facebook, Twitter, I still wouldn't have that much social interaction because when you're on your own a lot, you know, you obviously you're in your own company. Um, so the world of online has meant that you have got more of a social circle. It means that you can network. I certainly wouldn't have the, the, the kind of accolades in the CV that I've got about the online world. Because um, it's still actually quite rare for me to be published in actual physical print. Most of it is still digital. 
and I wouldn't have had that outlet without the evolution of technology. Yeah. But at the same time, where it can be a bit detrimental is that it can absolutely drain you because there's constantly something going on. Yeah. You know, the world is always updating now because it's in front of your screen. Yeah. You click on your phone to look at the next status update, the next tweet roll that's come through. Yeah. See, sometimes it feels like, oh, no, the world's getting on without me. You know, this story's breaking. I've not done any press releases for it. Quick, I need to get on it. Yeah. Uh, and that can put pressure on yourself to act when it's not a good time for you to do it. So, again, and this, I, this is a really crap mantra as well. I'm, I'm bringing them all out. No, no, do. But the, um, there's a film called Surf's Up, which is a, uh, it's, it's a animated film. And there's a time to surf and there's a time to wax your board. Always know which one to do. <laughs> I thought you were going to do like some real like, deep Buddhist. Oh, no, <laughs> no. We're going for Pixar. <laughs> <laughs> um, right, so come, some quick questions to run through. Um, what's your relationship with death? I'm all right of it. I, I generally, I'm, I've always, I'm not atheist because I, I'm of that opinion that you can't be atheist. I think you have to be agnostic if you're honest because none of us know. Yeah, sure, I'd go for that. Well, you, you know, it's all up in the air quite literally. So yeah. bollocks to that. So I'm agnostic. The, but hang on, there is a version of agnostic. Like, do you believe there's a grandfather up there? Yeah. All right, yeah. Do you know. believe in destiny? Um, I, I, I think that, again, destiny is what you can make it. I okay, think. do you believe you fatalism as in... Do, um, do you think there's going to be something... So things happen for a reason. That's why I hate that phrase. Yeah, I don't know if I'd go with that. I don't think there's, like, a, a prescribed route. I think that you are, again, the master of your own deal. I think it's like a video game. You've got the controller. You can put the character around the board, and you know what you're doing with it. Yeah. Uh, there may be a, there may be a, a parameter of, of what is possible and what isn't, but you're still controlling your own character within that. Um, and... Certainly within death, I don't fear it at all because, and, and this is going to, I don't know how this is going to come out actually, but when you have had a life of absolute pain, mm. which is what people like myself and, and a lot of others go through, the, the thought of death is almost like a holiday. <laughs> it's almost like, all right, there's going to be an end to it. That's all right. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to milk what I can out of this existence and at the other end of it, that's fine. So you get an acceptance of it. I think where a fear of death can come into it, because I haven't got kids yet, and I hope that one day I do, I think that's possibly where your mind starts changing. I think that when you want to live for someone else, yeah. I think that could potentially be where some conflicts come in. Yeah, that's really interesting. I don't have kids either. And I feel... I don't feel like... Um, I, I do probably think about it, and um, I think about it every day. So, uh, but I don't think about it in a way of, oh my God, I could die today. I just think, could die today. Yeah. Don't know why my heart keeps beating. Do you know what I mean? It's like, that's a bit of a weird thing when you start thinking about it. Yeah. And you go into a bit of a, you know, a cycle of thought. Um, but that's, in- that's really interesting. That made me feel a bit sad when you said that it would be, when you've had pain, it's like, this is a holiday. <laughs> um, is it that level of impact of, in your life then, as now as somebody who's, who's managed and and kind of got come to terms with it, do you still feel like a heavy dose of pain every day? Yeah, it's, it's constant. You can't get away from it. You can at best manage it. Um, and the managing side of things is it's, it's quite a tricky route in its own sense because, mm. you know, the pain relieving things we've got out there are opiates or, or medicinal cannabis or this, that and the other. 
ultimately, you know, you have to do the best to control that the best you can. How does it fit in with your daily life? Um, for example, I, obviously, I, I hold my hands up and I'm a medicinal cannabis user, but I'm not going to carry it up here because I don't want to get in... Even though I run an organisation for the police, I could still get in trouble with the police cause, yeah. and things like that. So the management of pain relief is, is a subject in its own right. Gosh. With prescription painkillers, obviously, they come with potential addiction issues. Then you're going through the roots of having to get through prescriptions and doctors, this, that, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So pain management is constant. So when you're dealing with it all times... And you do feel like, oh, yeah, there is an ultimate end to this. Yeah. It, it doesn't necessarily... I'm only speaking for myself, but it doesn't phase me. I think that I'm okay with knowing that eventually, okay, you're going to be okay. Yeah. I hope you don't die soon, mate, because I think you're a lovely person. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> that's a, that's a really nice compliment as well, isn't it? I hope you don't die soon. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's like it should be a greeting card, shouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sorry, Stu's just bloody appeared at the window. Ruining my vibe. <laughs> okay, I've got to ask this one, because this one's really interesting for you. Do you believe the, in the concept of the self-made person? Yeah, totally. I really do. I, um, you need helps and, and legs up along the way. Um, no one, I don't think, can do it on their own, the big journey. I think that we're all beholden to other people's influence. But I think that you can be the ones that have got the reins on your own on your own making and destiny. Um, my my route has been weird because again I've not set out to do what I've done because if you know I should be a wrestler <laughs> as we've discovered, but I'm now this kind of weird pseudo political journalist documentary maker thingy whatever, whatever it is over here. Um, can I just interrupt that and say do you actually think believe in any of those words you just called yourself? Um, again I. I don't think I do believe it because I see the the version of me that's going to be going home after this. Yeah. Uh, the one that's going to sit there tonight. I know that I'm going to sit there in slobby clothes. In... You can show your pants. <laughs> yeah. No, they, they won't be involved. <laughs> They're going to be on the floor down there somewhere. <laughs> so I'm going to be in my slobby clothes on the most comfortable chair that's in my house angled at the TV screen, watching the biggest load of trash that I can, um, with a vaporiser in one hand and all the nice lighting that I can possibly muster are going Philips on. Philips Hue? Uh, what, vaporiser? Oh, no, no. The, sorry, <laughs> the light. Say, a you said the nice lighting, and I was like, Philips Hue, you know those ones where you can change the colours? Oh, right. I've got, sorry. I didn't know if that was a new brand of vaporiser right now. Yeah. <laughs> I've got the Ariser Solo. <laughs> I've, got, um, I've got a star projector, which... Beams up, um, big oh, old uh, sort of beams of uh, lasers and, and like this cloud nebula thing. And, wow. Yeah, and if, if you blow your vaporizer at it, it, oh it, it kind of looks God, like Oh, my God, this is the modern... It looks like a Pink Floyd concert in your own house. <laughs> it's so naff, but brilliant. How I wish. How I wish you <laughs> exactly. were here. Honestly. Every, oh. Everybody needs to have a vaporizer and a, and a star projector. That's, that's all you need in life. That's so funny. <laughs> I just it's starting to now come into me. You've just you've designed your home like the perfect place to kind of chill out and incubate yourself. I, I, I am a massive believer in know how to rest because totally. most people don't. Yeah. Most people squander their downtime. Yeah. Like my other half does it all the time. She'll get in from work, she'll sort of languish around on her phone and then she'll go, Oh, I've got to go to bed. I'm like, make this an event. 
Yeah. Get everything you need to do done. <laughs> Here, take a look on this face. Yeah, right. like, get this in your face. <laughs> <laughs> stick stick take some mood light like. on. Wait. <laughs> yeah. I'll just put this on. Yeah, we're getting Floyd ready. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> let's chuck on those very lights. And, and no, you're right, Mark. Yeah, take ownership over that time. And don't, you know, because you, you become a prisoner of your fucking Twitter updates in your phone. Yes, yeah. And uh, it's always done like um, just an auto response, right? A lot of people, for a lot of people, they're just used to going, oh, do that. Have you found yourself doing that? Like, yeah, yeah. It's, it's so easy done, it really is, that, um, especially with regards to what you just said about Twitter, it's so easy to go, right, I've not done any update quick chuck something out there and then I can kind of rest because I feel like oh, I've given a presence. Like, how much do you have to do a day then in your head? Um, not so much now because I've got a healthier relationship with it <laughs> but when it was when the platform was first building I did feel a bit sort of beholden to it that yeah. I needed to kind of but because I've got um, corporate accounts like um, the, the organisation that I do has now been handed over to someone else which I'm really grateful for. Yeah. It means that they can keep on top of that. Yeah. Um, and I'm now I've backed away from social media a lot I'm now kind of a little bit typical old man of like, well, I've got the accounts, but I may do one tweet, two tweets a day. Yeah. Um, so follow me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> do follow me. It's a great entertaining experience. <laughs> <laughs> the chances are that I'm stoned in front of Pink Floyd as I'm doing it. So. <laughs> oh, sorry. I uh, ruined that last bit about the, your, your home um, and, you know, your, your private time. But I think that, that is important. Um, I love being at home, mate. When you, said, when you said to me, I've been at home a long time, I thought... I've always enjoyed being at home because I think I know how to entertain myself. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I, I'm yeah. ne- how can anyone be bored at home if you've got access to the internet and you can like p- look anything up? You can get stuck into, you know, like you were talking about quantum physics and, yeah. and or just like, um, hang on, astronomy, not astrology. Yeah, okay. well, we'll <laughs> navigate it. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you, you can, you know, your own limitation is your imagination there. Yeah, and I had this discussion with Pip a couple of weeks, Scrooby's Pip a couple of weeks ago, and, and we, we both said that getting to the age where you know it's okay to be in your own company is such a nice place to be. Yeah. Because when you're younger, the fear of missing out, which we know now know as FOMO, yeah, you know, it's like like anxiety. It's become a new word. Yeah. Um, the fear of missing out is is pretty all encompassing. Yeah. Like there's someone over there doing something better, like American Pie. There must be some wild party I can go oh, to over there. Oh, mate, the amount of times I turn up at a really banging party going, this isn't enough. Yeah. There's someone better. Yeah, and it is. It's that case of, again, just know what you want to do. That's yeah. fine. That's absolutely brilliant to do that. That's so interesting. I wonder if people are finding themselves and their thoughts quicker nowadays. Yeah, Do you I d- think maybe they are. I think that I think we're we're encouraged to be more self-exploratory. Yeah. I think that um, the, if we if we used to have the level of dialogue that that we've got around ourselves a few years ago, it would have been seen as self-centered and and quite narcissistic. Well, it is seen by actually other generations as exactly that. Yeah, isn't it? Yeah, yeah especially sort of yeah, because my parents' age and grandparents' age. It was, it was all about, no, you've got to socialise. And as we said about video games, yeah. no, get out there on a bike, go dig a hole in the garden. That was, that was the way that you were supposed to be wholesome. <laughs> what, Dad? Dig that hole, son. <laughs> Did you ever do that? Go to the beach, and, and this is featured on Friends, where you, and you just dig a hole. Yeah. <laughs> Don't do sandcastles, just a big it's, bloody it's hole. It's great. It's yeah. great to dig a hole. Get in it. Yeah. Yeah, there's a bit of that kind of like, same thing with Christmas Day, get a bike, 
well, let's play with the box first. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. I, was, I was lucky um, in, in my back garden as a kid, my parents had a bit of lawn and then the rest of it was a fenced off mud patch. And we were just allowed to <laughs> dig and just tunnel. That's and, awesome. Yeah, so if you're a parent out there, get your kids a mud patch. A mud patch. Yeah. I love that. That's really it is. I, I don't beaks. know if it's deliberate or not. And I, actually, I need to quiz them about that. What the yeah. hell was that about? Why do they allow that to exist? Yeah. You'd think in some ways that could be slippy, dangerous. And especially, there was one time we dug this massive tunnel that really was Down to safe. the water table. <laughs> yeah, it was. We were finding all kinds of, like, amethyst. And all sorts. <laughs> but there was no way that was safe. <laughs> and yet they just let us do you it. You watch way too much Dungeons <laughs> <laughs> Right, one last quick question. So, what's one way? What's one guaranteed way of achieving happiness? Uh, I think I'm going to have to revert back to something. There's just been the continual theme of know how you work. Mm. Just make sure that you do you well, mm. because it's so easy to compare yourself to others, whether it's body image, whether it's intellectual stimulation, and thinking that person's more intelligent yeah. or success, a, a, a feeling of success of. Oh no, they're getting on without me. This person's doing that, and also like um, in relationships as well. The relationship that you have with with whatever sex you're attracted to, you know, you have crushes. But then there's also, I think, such a thing as like a, a plutonic crush. So I know someone at the moment that their friend has drifted away from them a little bit, and they're feeling a little bit sorry, and they want to kind of catch up and go look. But we want to be, you know, mate, we're the best of friends. And, and I'm having to kind of console them a bit, going, look, it's okay. It's just, you know, it's periodic. You know, you've known them all your life and you'll, you'll get back in touch in one way or another. And I think that the overall point I'm making is just don't be in your own head about who you are. Because it's so easy to think that, oh, yeah. I'm, I need to be this person for that person. Totally. I love that. Just un- I, it's, it's such a cliche um, to the point where I almost don't want to say it but be unapologetically you. So, hang on, on that quick note, though. So, so define yourself just simply by how you are with people. So not, like, have this image of who you are. Because often there's a gulf between your projection of yourself. Mm. And I think um, that's a bit of self-realisation in there as well. There's a bit of self-awareness. Mm. But also, just... If, if everyone thinks you're um, a bit of a dick, or everyone thinks you're a certain way you should probably listen to a little bit of that there's going to be a truth in that mm. you know if, yeah. if you if you if you see things repeating that that can that can help people out of a problem they've got in life if you know yeah absolutely there's a balance to be struck of That's it, the yeah. right amount of self awareness that you can see the patterns that might be repeating because if you are a bit of a bell end and, and someone's just <laughs> we should be more constructive <laughs> than dick or bell end. yeah if you're a knob yeah. <laughs> just don't be a cock cheese just, yeah. <laughs> just yeah, well, you know what I mean yeah. but it's so true like you said that you need to get that balance of, of if if people are drifting away from you or you've, you've not had the right responses that you think you should, then, yeah, an element of self-analysis, sort of yeah. but not too much where you're, it then turns into anxiety. Yeah. Because it's so easy to do that with our characters. We're, I think our natural default position sometimes is anxiety. Yeah. And, and get away from that and just be like, okay, I'm just... The best people in life are the ones that just, that just do them really well. Yeah. Uh, they've got no pretense of who they are, just just them. That's so difficult. It's all so perceptive as well. Because, and sorry, it's so subjective, because 
they may not feel like that. Yeah. I, I, you know, I've looked at people and gone, wow, you're super comfortable. And then you speak to him 10 years later and go, no, never really. I just, yep. well, I wanted a bit of what you had. And you're like, why? And, and that's, I think, another key is that, think of it, that we're constantly evolving as our character, you know, whether it's our own cells that are constantly evolving and we're going to be a literal different person because of our skin, yeah. or if it's a, an intellectual kind of point of view that we're evolving and we're going to be a different person because of that. I know I'm not the same person I was 10 years ago. I've, mm. I've changed because of the last 10 years. Are you happy with the person now? I th- yeah, I think so, largely. I think there's, I've certainly got improvements I can make. You know, I need to listen to my own advice more of, of, of you know, let the, the small stuff go, you know, don't look over your shoulder. They're all things I'm always having to remind myself to make sure that I do. Yeah. Um, but, and, and I think of my younger self, the one that was in the band, um, it, it was perfectly all right, but he, there was... A little bit of a, a, again, a bit of a knob in him. I think at the time when when I was in the band, the, the whole jackass thing was quite big. You so, said jackass. Oh, is that? Yeah, am I allowed to say jackass? <laughs> no, it's just when an English person says it, I just love it. I just want to say, hear them say it again. It's, uh, it's like if you ever heard, I've got quite a few American friends that, that live in London. Like the way they say Graham, Graham, Graham. Yeah, it's Graham. like it's like one. And also, I, I, I was listening to <laughs> or Craig is Craig. Yeah, Craig, Craig. Yeah, Craig. I was listening to Plus Forty Four, which was kind of like a, a spin-off of Blink One Eight Two, and they rhymed. Poem with another word that so wasn't meant to be poem. It was like, no, you, you Joey. Remember, it, it was something like that. I can't remember what it was. I'm going to have to look it up. But it was a word that, like, that I think that might have been it. Poem, home. That was it. Yeah, what stupid, <laughs> what stupid poem could I read that was something about this home? Actually, I think it is a Blink 182 song. <laughs> poem and home don't rhyme. Yeah, but yeah. they made it right. Anyway, sorry, I'm being really xenophobic <laughs> This is the person you are back at yeah. home, just having a freak out. Yeah, just like really damning Americans. <laughs> yeah, get back on Twitter. Yeah. Poem and home. <laughs> Mate, thank you so much for coming in. I've, I've so enjoyed it. Thank you for having me. It's been really good fun. It's been really good fun. It's lovely to have met you as well for the first time. And you, and let's get these wafer tubes again. Yeah, let's get, let's crack on with them. <laughs> Cheers, mate. Oh,